All right, that's my idea of gadgety boxes and eggs. Nice. All right, um, speaking of gadgety, uh, if you do not have a Bible or a smartphone that has a Bible on it, um, just go ahead and put your hand up and our ushers will get you one that you can use this morning. We have a lot of ground to cover again in the Word of God. We've got a lot of passages that we're going to look at, and uh, I hope you enjoy the tour that we take. So, uh, If you are new to this church, uh, maybe visiting with us this morning, let me give you an idea here of what it is we're doing right now. Um, We're talking these days about the subject of hope. I cannot imagine my life without the hope that I have. And I have a very strong desire for every one of you to be living with a firm grip on that hope that I'm experiencing As we read the Bible and experience the life of a a Jesus follower, we can see the foundational importance of three characteristics in this life. And those characteristics are faith and hope and love. And so we spent the fall looking at our faith. Since the start of the year, we've been talking about hope. And then after Easter, we'll embark on on a study of the subject of love. These are essential elements of our lives in God's family. We are to be growing, deepening, and pursuing our experience of faith and hope and love. God wants us to experience those things. It's his desire for us. We are also to be reflecting to the world faith and hope and love. And so here we are in the midst of our dive into the meaning of hope. What is this hope that we have and how does it affect our lives? So as part of this journey, our journey to take hold of hope in a real and tangible way, uh, we're exploring exploring the life and writings of someone who had achieved and accumulated everything that he had hoped for and beyond. His name was Solomon, and he was the wealthiest, wisest man to ever live. And he wrote a book called Ecclesiastes, a dark, despairing book that was written by a man who later in his life turned away from God and was now discovering that without God, life had indeed become meaningless. Last week, we ventured into one of the themes found in the book of Ecclesiastes. It was all based on this word, vanity, which Solomon uses 38 times in writing this book. It's a word that means meaningless, void, fleeting, something that we cannot get a hold of, nor can we expect a return from it. And this is a word that Solomon uses to describe our experience in life. The things we pursue, he says, are all meaningless. Vanity, a chasing after wind. Work is meaningless. Money is meaningless. Pleasure is meaningless. Life is meaningless. He paints a very bleak picture using this word vanity that we looked at last week. Solomon had come to the end of his life after having lived life to its fullest by the world's standards, and he found it to be empty. Empty. He had reached the top. And even that did not satisfy. But we also looked at the reality that there was a very real reason for this dark perspective. Solomon, towards the end of his life, had turned from God. And so God used him and his very memorable life to teach the world, to teach us a lesson. Um, There is no true meaning to be found in life apart from God. In contrast, Jesus has taught us the true way to meaning. He instructs us to seek God first and foremost, not because he's a selfish God, but because he, being the one who gave us life to start with, is the one true source of life, and he's the creator and author of life's meaning. God can and will fill our lives with meaning if, if we seek him. 
with everything that we've got. He doesn't promise to give us all that meaning. If we just believe that he's real, he says that when we seek him with everything we've got, he'll take care of giving meaning to our lives, a meaning that simply cannot be found in anything that this world has to offer, a hope that can only be found in him. So we move on this morning to discover what else God's teaching us through Solomon's life, and there are some significant things that we can find here in the book of Ecclesiastes. So turn there with me now, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, that's page 553 in the blue Bibles that were just handed out, and let's read the first three verses together again. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, let's look at the first three verses. This is how Solomon starts this book. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does, a man, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Well, verse 2 introduced us last week to the theme of the vanity of life that's in this book. Solomon found all man's pursuits to be meaningless. He states that we gain nothing from all that we work for during our lives. And again, remember that Solomon was was making this statement based on the fact that he had turned from God and discovered the hard way that life is indeed meaningless without him. In verse 3, we hit our second theme from the book of Ecclesiastes. It's found in a three-word phrase, under the sun, under the sun, And if you read through this book, this is another term that you'll run across over and over again. So let's do what we did last week with the word vanity. Let's take a a speed tour through the book of Ecclesiastes to see just how prevalent this term is. All right, have your Bibles open in front of you and let's take a tour. In chapter 1, verse 3, we're introduced to this term. Solomon talks about us toiling away under the sun. Then in verse 9, he repeats the phrase, He says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And we'll come back and and visit this later, but Solomon is establishing that he's observing things and commenting on things from a specific point of view that he refers to as under the sun. Verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Go to chapter 2, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now here's that pairing that we talked about last week. The word vanity and the term under the sun. They go hand in hand for Solomon. Chapter 2, verse 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Um, This pit that Solomon was in was very deep. And what he's doing in this place he calls under the sun is sucking the life from him. Verses 18 and 19. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. And then a turning point for Solomon in verse 20. So I turned about 
and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Solomon gave up. He quit. Life under the sun was just void of meaning and satisfaction, and so he gave himself over to despair. What a tragic turn for one who had been so close to God and so blessed by him. Chapter 3, verse 16. He says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now note something here. Um, where is Solomon looking? He says he saw. Where is he looking? He's looking under the sun. And we'll clarify that in a bit. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. Now, this under the sun place looks pretty hopeless from Solomon's perspective. And, and he's right. Verse 3. But better than both, those who are living and those who have died already, is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Things are so bleak that Solomon, in his, in his dark form of compassion, states that those who have not yet been born are the luckiest of all. Verse 7 continues that thought and sums it up by stating that once again he sees vanity in this place. Verse 15 I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. Um, Solomon talks about the way humanity gets, gets caught up in this cycle under the sun and how it all eventually leads to the same place. Go to chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. He says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Um, Solomon speaks here of the meaningless nature of wealth. You work to gain wealth, but you can't take it with you beyond this place under the sun that he's talking about. He sees us just heading into darkness from here, and he laments the loss of all that we toil for in this place. Then in verse 18, he concludes that there is nothing left but to just enjoy what you have now. He actually states that the extent of God's gift to us is to simply enjoy what you have while you're alive because you're going to lose it all. What a depressing perspective. Chapter 6, verse 1. It says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. This is all about perspective. Under the sun, there's a lot to despair about because from that perspective, only God's just messing with us. He gives us things that we can't even truly enjoy. Chapter 6, verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell what will be after him under the sun? So stuck in this under the sun perspective, Solomon observes that we have no idea what's coming after us here, here under the sun. And so we can't possibly find purpose to our existence here. Uh, it is so sad to see where Solomon has come in all this. Go to chapter 8, verse 9. Chapter 8, verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Um, Solomon is invested in this hopelessness, this despair that he's talking about. The most educated, wise man on earth has invested his incredible mind and 
his emotions to observing what's done here under the sun. And it's not just enlightening to him. This causes him pain. Verse 15, Solomon's conclusion. He says, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Uh, we're talking this year about the three foundational experiences in, experiences in life. Faith and hope and love. Um, joy, the mere enjoyment of earthly things as Solomon describes it here, does not reach that level of value where the other three are. But Solomon has lost touch with what's deepest, the things that have the truest meaning. Um, he's now operating under the sun only. In verse 17, he uses the term under the sun again. In chapter 9, Solomon uses it again in verses 3, 6, 9, 11, and 13. It's there again in chapter 10, verse 5. And three more times in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon uses the term under heaven instead of under the sun. Um, and it communicates the same thing. It communicates his vantage point. It means the exact same as under the sun. So we have to ask ourselves why this term is even here why did he keep adding this to the statements that he made um, you can't miss it when you read ecclesiastes all that solomon observes is placed in the context of being under the sun and we don't have to read anything into this there's no guessing he makes it crystal clear that he's seeing things from this place that he calls under the sun and not just seeing things from this place but seeing only things in this place under the sun seems to be all that exists for Solomon. And therein lies our lesson this morning. If we think literally about this phrase, under the sun, we quickly realize that Solomon is talking about the things of this earth. Remember again that Solomon had turned from God at this point. His eyes were not on the things of God, they were on the things of this earth only. Solomon's perspective lined up with a perspective that is very common in this day, in this age, we only live once. This is all there is. When you die, you merely cease to exist, so get the most that you can out of this life. Does that sound familiar at all? Very. We're surrounded by this way of thinking. Just look at the things that have become the highest values in our society. Things like entertainment, instant gratification, leisure and recreation, individualism, all results of a society's perspective being earthly based. The meaning of life for most of our society has come to line up well with Solomon's observations. Just aim for personal happiness because there's nothing beyond this. So did Solomon always see things this way? Well, let's look at a progression in his writing. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to read verses 19 to 22. Chapter 3, verses 19 to 22. He says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. 
Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Okay, now let's travel back in time to when Solomon was writing from a very different perspective. Remember that Ecclesiastes was written in the late years of Solomon's life. Early in his life, Solomon wrote a collection of his Proverbs, wisdom to share with the world. Look at what he wrote in Proverbs 14.32. This will be up on the screen. Proverbs 14.32. He says, The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. Now there's a sharp contrast here between Solomon stating that there's refuge in death for those who follow God and him stating later that there's only darkness after death. In Proverbs, Solomon points to eternity in a very positive light. But in Ecclesiastes, he concludes that man has it no better than the animals. We came from the dirt and to the dirt will return. Solomon had lost hope. He had lost hope. And Solomon had lost hope because Solomon had lost the source of his hope. He had lost his connection, his walk with God, and had turned away from him. Now, in contrast to the earlier stages in Solomon's life, Solomon's vision now was very limited. His perspective had changed, his vantage point had changed. He could only see what could be seen. And that's what he had attempted to put his hope in, very unsuccessfully. Now, Solomon certainly had an understanding of what he could see. He was no dummy. Uh, let me give you an example of that. Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Let's look real quickly at verses 4 through 7. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 4 through 7. He says this, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Well, again, we can see that Solomon is speaking from a very earthly perspective here. To him, the, things that, the thing that lasted forever was the earth. And we are just temporal residents here. We come and we go. That's what he's saying in verse 4. In verse 5, he's talking about the cycle of the sun here. And we can forgive him for sounding like he believes that the earth is stationary and the sun is mobile, circling the earth. Um, it had not yet been discovered by anyone around him that the earth was actually orbiting the sun. So Solomon observes this simple, meaningless cycle of the sun rising and setting and then getting back in position again in the east. And then in verse 6, he mentions the cycle of the wind. And, and this is actually pretty remarkable. He mentions specific directions, north and south. And he's talking here about global wind patterns. And that was highly advanced for the time in which he lived. Um, this wasn't just a comment about wind just randomly changing directions where he lived. This was a specific and correct pattern that he mentioned here for this part of the world. Verse 7 is even more remarkable. Um, Solomon had been educated in something that was not even close to being commonly understood at that time. He, he's making statements here about his understanding of hydrology. And this is, uh, again, very advanced understanding for that time. Now, now our kids learn about hydrology in the first grade, but back then, that was not the case. 
Solomon's understanding of earthly things was very deep. He was a very smart man. But Solomon's understanding was of a, a meanless, meaningless cycle that just ended in darkness. That's it. Eternity was not part of his, his picture at this time. And so in despair, he writes of the weariness of life under the sun. At one point, Solomon does mention eternity. You may have seen it in there, but only in light of God putting eternity in people's hearts as nothing more than a frustration to them since they couldn't see it anyways and were only subject to the futility that he was experiencing himself. And what he stated was understandable. Without God, without his spirit to enable us to see eternity, life is ultimately nothing more than a meaningless cycle that leads to nowhere other than the repetition of that cycle by those who come after us. Ecclesiastes is not a book of hope. It is not a book of hope. It reads more like a dead-end sign. Looking for meaning in life, looking down a road that does not include God, and here's what you'll find. Take it from a man who has explored this road to its fullest. You're only going to find vanity here. The road under the sun is a dead end. Solomon, as his life draws to a close, can only see life from the cheap seats. He's viewing all these different aspects of life from an earthly perspective only. He's looking to find hope in what is seen. And as we've already learned about hope, eternal hope can only be found in what is unseen. In chapter 1, verse 8, Solomon makes a short but profound statement. He says this, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What we can see, no matter how impressive, no matter how shiny, no matter how exciting, cannot satisfy. We've got to be in a place where we can see what cannot be seen. We've got to be in the right position with the right perspective. So let's talk about that for a while. For, for those of us who have not turned away from God, uh, where are our seats? What perspective do we have? Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians. Let's see what the Spirit of God wrote through Paul about our position and our perspective in Christ. Let's see the contrast between what Paul wrote and what Solomon wrote. Ephesians chapter 1. Go to verse 15. This is so encouraging. Ephesians 1, verse 15, we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 10. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus here, and this is what he says. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of, our, of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world under the sun, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that, one, that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul wrote, was not writing to Solomon here, but he might as well have been. In contrast to all the despair that Solomon described from his place under the sun, this passage is a loud declaration of hope to all those of us who see life from somewhere beyond the sun. Solomon asked God for wisdom. Paul prayed for God's wisdom for his church. He prayed that God's spirit would be our wisdom. Why? So that we could discover that life is meaningless after we've studied it our whole lives? No. Remember that Solomon saw only what he could see without God's spirit toward the end of his life. Paul is praying for God's wisdom to enable us to see something altogether different than what Solomon saw. Paul was praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Okay, enlightened regarding what? Well, Paul says that he's praying that we'll be enlightened regarding three things. The first of those three things is the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. He prays that we will see the hope to which God has called us. Not the despair that Solomon experienced. That kind of experience is not God's will for anyone. Paul wants his church to see the hope that is ours. Secondly, Paul wants us to see the riches of God's inheritance for us. Not the earthly riches that Solomon accumulated. God's riches. Something we can't see but can fully expect. The riches that make up our inheritance as co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Paul prays for enlightening to see God's power towards his children. And what is that power? That we can be raised from the dead like Jesus. What a contrast to the darkness that Solomon writes about. But Paul's far from done. What did God do with Christ when he raised him from the dead? He seated Jesus, his son, at his own right hand in heaven. And he gave him ultimate power over everything and for every age to come, forever. And, can you believe this, God then gave Christ to us, to his church. 
We came to life with the gift of an eternal head over this body, the body of Christ, his church. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, we were dead in our sin. Born with it. Born dead. Guilty. Deserving death. We were positionally of this world. Were, past tense, under the sun, as Solomon puts it. That's the extent to which we could see when we were born. We were born slaves to the world's cycle. This meaningless, hopeless cycle that Solomon spoke of. Following the course of this world is what Paul says here. By nature, we only cared for the desires of our flesh and our minds, something Solomon identified in Ecclesiastes as the extent of the meaning of life. But, go back to Ephesians 2, verse 4. Listen well, memorize this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our seats got upgraded. That's the gift that we received from God. We're given a new seat, a new position. We are, not will be, are Seated in Christ in the heavenly places, that's where our spirits live. Total mystery, I know, but very real and very true. It's the unseen part of us. So when we look at life, we're to see life from our position in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And from an eternal position, we're enabled to see God's spirit, by God's spirit, to see life from an eternal perspective. From that position, this is the perspective that Solomon had totally lost. He was only seeing things from an earthly perspective, not a heavenly one. So, uh, we can leave this at the level of good theology or we can keep going with it and make it personal. This truth that Paul writes of here is an enormous source of hope for me. This just goes to the very deepest level of my being. I am seated at the right hand of God in Christ right now. And despair has absolutely no place in that reality. But Paul does not just say here that we have received this hope. He says that we have been called to this hope. And that call, any call, requires some sort of response, some sort of action from us. Hope requires some sort of response from us. And we'll talk about that response next week. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Are you living in the reality of your eternal, unseen position, seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ? Or are you still living with the understanding that you are positioned here, being pulled along by the course of this world? Are you viewing life from a heavenly perspective? Or are you, like Solomon, looking to find meaning on earth's level? Paul prayed that we would find this eternal perspective through the enlightenment of God's spirit in us. Solomon left God out of the picture. Paul spoke of the riches of God's inheritance. Solomon spoke of the meaninglessness of wealth. Paul spoke of our heavenly position in Christ. Solomon spoke of the vanity of any earthly position.
One has taught us today from failure and tragedy. The other has taught us from eternal truth. One was given wisdom and then sadly removed himself from the source of that wisdom. The other prayed for wisdom. Wisdom to know personally the source of wisdom and to walk with him all the days of our lives. Chapel Hill, give up your place in the cheap seats. If you're on the road, Solomon was on the road without God, it's time to change course. Solomon proved just how hopeless those seats in that road really is. Accept the gift that God has given you. A seat next to the king in heaven. And travel the road that he has already marked out for you. Today we celebrate communion as God's church, as the body of Christ. We remember the price that was paid in order for this position and this perspective to become available to us. We remember the body of Christ that was given for us. We remember the blood of Christ that was shed for us. We remember the fact that we are God's children, bought, ransomed for a very high price. Bought with the blood of the Lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. I want to invite you to come and participate in the sacrament of communion this morning. You don't have to be a member of this church. You only have to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you've accepted the gift of his forgiveness and have been restored through him to God, just come. You can take the elements here at the front. You can take them with you back to your seat. You can gather with your family or your spouse or your friends or whoever anywhere in this room and participate together. Just come as we sing together. This act, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the very act that made it possible for us to be raised up with Christ and seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ. Praise be to God for his indescribable gift. I'm going to invite the elders to come now and prepare to serve, and the worship team come on back up here to Lead us in song as we participate together. Let's pray before we do. <clears throat> Father in heaven, um, as we come to remember, you've instructed that we take care of anything that may exist between us and you between us and somebody else. Father, I ask now that, <clears throat> that we do come to you right now and if, if there are those here who, are, who can relate to this concept that, that Solomon came up against, who are looking for meaning here on earth, in this life, in the things and experiences around them, pray that they would take the time now to just confess that to you. To admit that they've been looking in the wrong place for hope. To admit that they've been looking under the sun. That they have not seen their life from the perspective, from the position that you've given us seated at your right hand in Christ. I pray that they would just take care of that right now.
Father, I ask this morning that you would open our eyes of understanding. This idea that we are seated at, the, at your right hand in Christ right now is pretty tough to understand. It's not something that logic can just explain away. So by your Holy Spirit who dwells in us, open up our eyes, our hearts, our minds to see that we have been raised up with Christ, seated at your right hand. God, I want to thank you for for revealing this to me, for showing that for showing me that this is the perspective that I need to view life through, that it's my position, and that when I look at life, I, I don't just see what's under the sun. I know that there's no hope in what's under the sun. I thank you for raising us up and seating us next to you. God, teach us to see life from this perspective to see everything from the vantage point of being seated next to you in heaven where eternal things are what matter. Open our eyes, Lord. Thank you for this incredible gift that when your son Jesus died, we died with him. We were buried with him. We were raised up with him. Thank you for making that possible. You didn't have to send Jesus, but you did. And we are the beneficiaries, and we are so grateful for this gift. God, don't let us take communion lightly this morning. Let us take it in light of this deep understanding that we have died, been buried, and raised again with Jesus Christ and seated in the heavenly places at your right hand. Let us see the significance of what we're remembering here. The body of your son that was beaten and bruised and crucified for our sake. The blood of your son that was shed so that we could be forgiven and our spirits could reside next to you in heaven. We praise you for this gift. We come now to remember and to look forward to the day when he will come again. We do this in his name, in the precious name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen.